0: My name is Darren. I'm one of the Shepherds on staff and excited to welcome you uh, with all these others who have already welcomed you. I want to make uh, two quick announcements before we dive into this. The first one has to do with, um, we already mentioned we've got our sort of missions focus next week. uh, And then after that, on the 20th of February, we've got a family business meeting in the afternoon. So I always just like to put that in front of you well in advance. That'll be an opportunity for you to hear a little bit about our budgeting process for next year. I know uh, many of you are just dying to hear about our budgeting process for next year, but that's a good place to get. Up on those kinds of details. We'll also be uh, introducing our new uh, nominee for eldership. The nominating committee has been working on that over the last couple of months, and so that nominee will be introduced at that meeting on the 20th. It's just a great place to get caught up on stuff we don't do in the middle of a worship service because. We're purposefully trying to keep our attention on Christ, but we'd love to have you join us for some of that stuff. It doesn't mean it's not important. So That's on the 20th, and I just wanted to make sure you knew that was happening. I think that congregational meeting is at 3 o'clock on Sunday the 20th uh, right here in the chapel. So That was my first announcement. The second one has to do with this mask. So I wanted to uh, say I've been wearing this mask over the last month or so, both uh, in response to the recommendation of scientists who say this is the best way for me to care for my neighbors. I, I, over the last two years, like many of you, I've been diligently doing everything I can to manifest and reveal the heart of Christ and my care and concern for other people. And so uh, along the way, that's been tricky to navigate for me, just like it has been for you. Uh, But I've been wearing this as I teach over the last little bit, both to care well for my neighbors, but also uh, in recognition that in a service like this, we've got folks who uh, are at risk, or some who are wearing masks, or some who are not on stage. We've got people who've tested and people who haven't. But I mostly wanted to wear the mask in solidarity with those of you who are wearing masks for the sake of saying, if you're wearing a mask... you're in our worship service or if you're at home watching this from a distance and you're wearing a mask that doesn't make you an outsider it doesn't make you peculiar like in this place we're trusting people to make good decisions we're trusting people to reveal christ and so i've been wearing it uh, as a way to say like this is normal and it's perfectly acceptable and it's great and we're not going to be in the business of judging one another about our response to these kinds of things but in the last couple of weeks, it's also come to my attention that there are several of our folks, regular folks, who are uh, watching from home because they're either at risk or they've been sick. And for many of them, not only do I talk really fast, I talk really fast for everybody, but for many of them, the ability to see my lips moving makes it possible for them to track with me and understand. And so it's come to my attention that for some of the folks, they're having a hard time tracking with the teaching because of the mask. And so they've asked me to take it off so that those who are lip reading uh, will be able to follow along. And So you can see I've got a little bit of a conflict because on one hand, I want to care well for my neighbors in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, We've got friends and neighbors who are in the hospital or who are dying. Uh, at the same time, I want to care for people who want to hear God's word proclaimed and maybe can't see it on the screen because of the mask. So here's the deal. I got a decent space of, uh, you know, from me to the front row here, there's a good little distance. I have been fully vaccinated. I actually had COVID last August. I'm a very low risk to anybody, even those of you who are 30 feet from me. I'm going to take this off while I teach for the good of the people who need to be able to see my mouth. And if that makes you feel sad, I'm happy to have a conversation with you later, but I'm, I'm you hear my dilemma. I'm trying to navigate how well to love people and how to shepherd the whole flock of God in the midst of a complicated season. That's all I'm describing. So, I'm going to take it off. Do your worst. Send me your emails. That's fine. I'm ready. Okay. Um, Nah, no, it's good. Hey... And I'm, I'm not, I'm not, thanks for that. I'm not aiming for applause. What I am aiming for is to be a part of a, the body of Christ and all of us trying to navigate how to well to care for our neighbors in the season, right? That's all I want. I just want us all to be doing that same kind of math. And I get that it's complicated. So there's that. Okay, now, Genesis 27. Genesis uh, 27. Genesis twenty-seven. I, I wrote in my notes here at the beginning, like, "Oh, here we are again." If you've been in this series with us over the last couple of weeks, it feels like every time I get up to teach the narrative in the in the section of Genesis that we're in, I kind of the sort of the overarching message is here is a bunch of crummy people being crummy to each other, right? And I I want to apologize because once again we look at Genesis twenty-seven, and what we've got. I mean, I hate to summarize it this way, is a bunch of crummy people being crummy to each other. I, I look at this chapter, and it's kind of a famous chapter. Those of you who have been around the church at all, you're probably familiar with the story of uh, Isaac, excuse me, Isaac telling Esau to go out and prepare a game, bring it back so that he can give him the blessing. And then Jacob hearing about that plot from his mother and then putting fur on his arms, which is weird, right? Putting fur on his arms and on his neck so that he can pretend to be Esau to his blind father and, and get the blessing himself. You may be familiar with the story already. I just want to point out as we look at it, even in an overarching sense, we're looking at the whole chapter here, that that it's just selfishness again and again and again, wrecking everything. In the text that we studied last week in Genesis 26, God had come to Isaac and said, look, I have been with you. And I have been with your father, Abraham, and I will be with you, God had said to him, right, in 26. And he would said, I will be with you in the future. I'm with you now. I've been within you in the past. There is no question of the blessing of God in Isaac's life and upon the people around and in proximity to Isaac. That's why in Genesis 26, Abimelech wants to get close to Isaac because the blessing of God is upon him. And because by being in proximity with Isaac, Abimelech himself can receive some blessing. There is no question about the blessing of God, both being on Isaac and having an impact on everybody in his circle. And yet it's not enough. It's not enough for anybody in the story. No one is satisfied with the abiding presence and blessing of God. With the unlimited blessing of God, none of them are satisfied. They just continue to try to win whatever weird little game it is they have in their heads. It's not one of my finest moments, but uh, I will admit to you this morning that I made my wife cry on our honeymoon. We've been married for 26 years, uh, almost 26 years, and on uh, on our honeymoon, my wife and I, I married my best friend. We'd been dating for four years by the time we got married. On our honeymoon, we went to Oregon. We rented a cabin, kind of out in the middle of nowhere. It was really lovely. We had a rental car. We drove all over. We saw covered bridges. We hiked to waterfalls. We went to Crater Lake. We did all these cool Oregon things. It was the best. Uh, the only the only scar on the entire week of our honeymoon was that in this cabin we rented, they had all these board games, and uh, so and there was no TV. There was no. This is before Netflix. We didn't have cell phones, none of that. So we're in this cabin in Oregon, and they have board games, and they had uh, my favorite and my my favorite board game is Monopoly. But what you have to know about me is I'm a bit of a, I'm a bit of a Monopoly trash talker. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I feel like I'm decent at Monopoly, first of all. And then secondly, if you're playing Monopoly with me, I'm not just working to try and take all of your assets and, and, you know, acquire all of your property. I want to shame you in the process, right? I want you to feel embarrassed about the way you play, embarrassed about all the things you're losing. So here I am with my new bride in a beautiful cabin in the middle of Oregon. We've been on a wonderful hike during the day. Now we're sitting in front of a fire playing Monopoly. And I look across the table and I see my. Bride, weeping. She's crying, right? And I was like, "Are you are you crying?" And she's like, "This hurts my feelings, right?" She's like, "Monopoly is too much like real life, right?" And I'm like, "Oh, m- why? Because I said it would be better for you to stay in jail. It seems like you're more successful if you go back to jail, right?" <laughs> and uh, I realized that because of my trash talking and just the sort of mean spirited, aggressive way in which I desperately wanted to beat her at Monopoly, I had stirred up tears in her. It's crazy the things that we will do at different times, even with people that we love, even with people that we care about because of this insatiable desire to dominate or to win or to be the most accomplished or to achieve or to overcome or to get something we think we deserve or something we think we need. We'll ignore the fact that we've got great relationships in front of us, that we've been greatly blessed, and all we can think about is accomplishing some crazy goal that actually breeds division, that actually breeds disunity and a breakdown of community. Once again, in Genesis 27, there are no heroes. We never see the family together. I want you to know in in an overview, and we're going to read through these sections a little bit of time, there is never a time in Genesis 27 where we see the whole family sitting down together to have a conversation. We see no dialogue, we see no compassion, we see no gestures of trust, we see no gestures of love. We never see them sit down and discuss their concerns, see them discuss the things that they're worried about, see them discuss their objectives and their goals with civility. We do not see the family all talk together. What we see are a bunch of little clusters. We see Rebecca talk to Jacob, we see Esau talk to Isaac, we see Jacob talk to Isaac. We see, you know, we see this these little clusters. What we see is division. We see disunity. They're always in little divided groups. Some of them never even appear to speak to one another. We never see Rebecca speak to Esau at all in this text, right? There's no approach to God in this text. There's no approach to one another. There's no discussion. There's no dialogue. There's no reasoning with one another, a reasonable conversation. There's no gestures of trust or love. There's no compassion. There's no empathy. There's no care. What there is is plotting and scheming to get what each individual wants, I want you to see that as an overview before we come in, because it's very relevant to our lives. There's much that is relevant, and I don't want you to miss it as we look through it. So let's just look at each of these, uh, these sections sort of in turn. Read with me verses 1 through 4 as we get some of Isaac's background. It says here, When Isaac was old, and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I'm old, and I do not know the day of my death. Now then take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. And prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. We already read in Genesis 25 that, that Isaac preferred Esau because he loved his game. He liked that he was a hunter and he liked the wild game. So don't miss the idea here. In that Isaac's preferences are driving this decision to defy God, and don't miss the fact that what es- or excuse me, what Isaac is suggesting to Esau is defying God. If we look ahead to the blessing that Isaac mistakenly passes on to Jacob, it is in direct defiance of what God had already said to Rebekah about the fact that the older would serve the younger. Remember that from Genesis 25? God had already said the older will serve the younger. So when you read the blessing of Isaac inadvertently to Jacob, but that he intended for Esau, what you see there is that Isaac, in his old age, is trying to subvert what God had said. We'll see that when we get to the blessing. But Isaac comes to him and he says, I'm old, I'm blind, I don't know how many years I'm going to live. And there was a system during this time period to pass on this blessing. It's essentially his last will and testament. It was always done, and this is worth noting, it was always done with witnesses. And in this particular case, there are no witnesses. Notice that this is Isaac coming to Esau saying, go out and find me some game like I like and bring it back and I'll bless you. Rebecca's not included, Jacob's not included, there aren't any other witnesses, even in a little bit when we see that Isaac's five senses all fail him, his taste and his smell and his sight and his touch, none of those, his hearing, none of those things work very well for him and he doesn't really know what to do and he continues to move forward because he cannot call a witness, he cannot call a witness because anyone he would call to be a witness would go, why are you doing this thing in defiance of what God had already said, right? So Isaac says to his son, I want you to go out and get me some of the game I love. It's Isaac's preference that's driving this division. It's Isaac's own tastes that are driving this division. And for what it's worth, it's Isaac's own tastes and his own preferences that create a vehicle for Rebecca to try and pull one over on him, right? You and I need to always be on guard about the places where we're being driven by our preferences, where we're being driven by our tastes, where we're being driven by our hunger and our appetites for the wrong things because they can become vehicles for division. And that's true in this case, just like it is in many others. So that's that's the background here. Isaac, driven by his preferences, appetite, he sends Esau out to get game and bring it back so that he can bless him in defiance with God's declaration. Let's read on. Look at verses five through seventeen. It says, Now Rebecca was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebecca said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man and I'm a smooth man. Uh, you know, at least he's aware of who he is, right? He's got a sense of who he is. I'm smooth. He's hairy. He says, perhaps, verse 12, my father will feel me and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. Note here that what Jacob is worried about is seeming like he's mocking his father. What he's worried about is seeming like he's doing exactly what he's doing. Jacob's not worried about the immorality of this. He's not worried about the lack of integrity of it. He's not worried about the sin involved. What he's worried about is the appearance of sin. What he's worried about is the appearance, right? And when you and I get more concerned about the way a thing seems than the way things actually are, we will always go off course. For Jacob to say, well, I don't really know if I want to put on the costume and do all this stuff because I don't want it to seem like I'm tricking dad, what he should have said is, I don't want to put all this stuff on because I will be tricking dad. You see the difference? Don't let yourself get absorbed into the seemingness of things. But Rebecca continues this plan. She takes the curse upon herself. In verse 13, his mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice. Go bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebecca took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in her house. Put them on Jacob, her younger son, and on the skins of the young goats, uh, and the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck, and she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son. Rebecca overhears and plots behind Isaac's back to deceive him. Manipulation, favoritism, deception, control, all to achieve her desire. It's worth noting here that God, and this is a broad, a broad overarching truth that's true for us in every day and in every age and in whatever circumstance and situation you find yourself, God does not need us to act with immorality in order to accomplish his purposes. He does not need us to cheat. He does not need us to steal. He does not need us to lie. He does not need us to hate. He does not need us to judge. He does not need us to do any of those things in order to accomplish his purposes. In fact, all of those things, the mockery, right, the, the the ridicule, the lying, the deceit, the manipulation, the control, all of those things mar the image of God in the life of Rebecca. For us around here, we talk a lot about the fact that our number one goal as a church in this city, on this street corner, is to reveal Christ. That we're constantly trying to reveal Christ in our thoughts and words and deeds and attitudes, that that's why the church exists, is to put Jesus on display. Well, can I tell you that in the moment you decide to take on uh, judgmentalism, or you try to take on condescension, or you try and take on hatred, or you try and take on deceit, or mockery, or insult, or greed, or pride, or any of those things, to accomplish what you perceive to be God's purpose, you actually are working counterproductive to the purpose of God, because you mar the image of Christ Revealed in yourself. Does that make sense? He doesn't need our manipulation. He doesn't need our deceit. He doesn't need our lies in order to accomplish his purpose. Rebecca gets off track here. She starts to think, you know, my husband Isaac's not going to do the thing the way God said. And and maybe we can attribute to Rebecca some wholeheartedness, right? It's possible there are some theologians that look and go, hey, what Rebecca's trying to do here is to keep God's prophecy or his oracle on track. If that is her heart, if her heart is to keep God's prophecy on track, she still goes about it in the wrong way. God didn't need her to do it like this. And his purposes would be accomplished either way, right? Let's read on together. Look at verse 18. So Jacob went into his father and said, my father. And he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn. (coughs) I'm Esau, your firstborn, right? I don't know. I'm hairy. Uh, he says, I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you found it so quickly, my son? And he answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. Uh, I, I, I want to just stop for a second and say here, um, a lot about this chapter troubles me. The, the the hair on the arms and the deceit and all of that. I mean, it, it really gets on my nerves. But the thing that I find most abominable in this text is the blasphemy of it. The the moment that in the midst of mockery and deceit, the moment that they're trying to manipulate this old man and his blindness to achieve their accomplished end, what they perceive as a win, and they use the seal of God to endorse their wicked behavior, that's where my, my blood boils, right? The hair on the back of my neck stands up. All of us are broken, right? Right, we know that. We talk about that every week too. I don't think i get up here on a Sunday without saying, guess what? Welcome to a congregation of busted people. That's all that exists. All of us are doing our best and we get it right on some days and we get it wrong on other days. But my friends, my family, Congregation of Fullerton Free, in the moments where you're getting it wrong, do not call that the work of God. Don't call that the hand of God. Don't call that the revelation of God. Call it your plan, right? Call it your work. Call it something else. Because to couple blasphemy on top of everything else is just like, it's just double damning, right? Isaac says, I don't know how you did this. How'd you get this game so fast? I mean, I've never seen you. I mean, you're an accomplished hunter, but I've never seen you come back so quick. And Jacob says, oh, you know, your God help me out. Thanks, God. Which, which is awful, right? So back to 21. Then... Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. So his ears fail him, his hands fail him. He did not recognize him because his hands were hairy, like his brother Esau's hands, so he blessed him. He said, are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. And then he said, bring it near to me, that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him. Jacob lies three times and even uses the name of God, right? He was worried about getting caught, not the actual wrongdoing. In this case, all five senses fail Isaac. That's a reminder to us that sometimes what what seems right to us or the thing that makes sense to us, we may be mistaken in. Sometimes our eyes and our ears and our smell and our taste and our touch, they fail us because we're flawed. In Isaac's case, he tries all five of those and none of them ring true for him. These efforts uh, these efforts are successful in that Jacob is blessed. And let's read the blessing here. It says in verse 27, See the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. uh, By the way, that might not sound like a compliment to you, but it was a compliment during this time period, right? If somebody told you, wow, you smell like dirt, you'd be like, that's not nice, right? But it was nice here. The smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. For the record, if you have any question about whether or not Isaac was trying to defy the ordinance of God or the oracle of God, it's right there, plain and simple. He thinks he's blessing Esau and he says, may your brothers serve you. It's the opposite of what God said would happen. Right? Now, God's bigger than Isaac's plan. God's bigger than Esau's plan. He's bigger than Jacob's plan and bigger than Rebekah's plan. And exactly what God said would occur, occurs. But Jacob receives the blessing. Now let's look at what happens when Esau returns. It says in verse 30, As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat some of his son's game, that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? And he answered, I'm your son, your firstborn Esau. And then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. It's interesting, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 20, uh, in the hall of faith there in Hebrews, you may remember when we studied Hebrews together, it actually speaks about Isaac, and it says that he blesses Jacob and Esau in faith. This is Hebrews eleven twenty. 20. You don't have to turn there. But it says, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. What's well, interesting, because this does not feel particularly faithful. But what most theologians will point to is that in 33... There is a moment where Isaac's eyes are opened when he says, I blessed the wrong guy. Uh huh and he will indeed be blessed that is the moment of faith for Isaac the moment of faith for Isaac is the moment when he realizes that God's purpose is in God's plan to pass the blessing through Jacob and not through Esau when he realizes that his plan had failed and that God had bested him i don't know if you've had a moment like that in your life i'm guessing some of you have i'm guess, guessing there have been moments in your life where you were trying to do things according to your plan or you were trying to do things that made sense according to your taste and your touch and your smell and your your scent and all of those things and you That your purpose wasn't going to work and that God's purpose would be accomplished. In those moments, we all kind of find ourselves going, Oh, yeah, he's God and I'm not. Oh, right, I blessed the wrong guy and he will be blessed. God God was in that. 33, Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted the game and brought it to me? I ate it all before you came and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. It's interesting. uh, It's interesting in the middle of these human drama moments, how quickly we see ourselves as the victim. In fact, we almost exclusively only see ourselves as the victim. Uh, Esau seems to have forgotten here that in Genesis 25, he lost the birthright because he traded it for a bowl of stew, right? Now it's so easy. In his recollection, it seems like Jacob tricked him these two times, right? It seems like Jacob has been devious, but Esau has no memory, apparently, for the fact that he sold his, birth, or his, his birthright in the first case. And in this particular case, he was plotting with his father Isaac in secret, with no witnesses, with no conversation with Rebekah and Jacob, about the passing of the blessing, which should have been a family thing. He doesn't mention that at all. He doesn't mention that this whole thing was a subversive plot. What he mentions is he's been wronged. Well, that happens in our lives, too. It's easy to feel like the victim when, in fact, we miss our own complicity in the way things have turned out. It says in 36, es- Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he's taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. The blessing was a blessing of abundance and authority and alignment with God. Even though Isaac didn't know what he was doing, the blessing that he gave him, he understands. Esau said in verse 30, he says, what then can I do for you, my son? In 37 and 38, Esau said to his father, have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. You can see these two men and they're men, by the way, they're both old. You can see them quaking and shaking with the the violation That they've been deceived, that they've been tricked, that their plan came off the rails. You can see the grief. It's it's kind of a heartbreaking moment. The division and the distress that have occurred in this particular case. Isaac lifts up his voice in what we think will be a second blessing, but it's actually uh, what we sort of refer to as an anti-blessing. This is what Isaac says in 39. Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when, you're, when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. There's a little bit of a ray of sunlight at the end of it, but by and large, it's not really much of a blessing. In fact, he just states kind of the reverse of what the blessing is, that the fatness and the dew will go to Jacob, Right? Now Esau, verse 41, Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. So not only do we see uh, him frustrated and angry and bitterly sad, but now we see him plotting murder. We see hatred here. I'll kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise and flee to Laban, my brother in Haran. And stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away. Until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you've done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebecca goes on in this last section. She goes on to uh, point to the fact that Esau... We won't read the whole thing for the sake of time. But she points to the fact that Esau has taken two Hittite wives. If you were to back up into the end of 26... We didn't really look at it last week. But at the end of 26, it says that Esau took two two Hittite wives. And that they were a source of bitterness for both Isaac and Rebecca. Now Rebecca points at those two Hittite wives and she says to her husband... We got to get Jacob out of here. Because if he marries a woman from this country one of these Hittite women like Esau married, I'm going to go bonkers. I won't be able to stand it. So send him back to Laban, right? And let him find a wife from our own people. She doesn't mention the fact that she's sending him away to protect him from the vengeance of Esau, but they send him away. And in fact, if we were to look at the beginning of 28, uh, you see a second blessing by Isaac as he sends Jacob away to go and find a wife. That's where we'll pick it up next week when we come back to the text. But here's what I want you to look at with me in the time we have left this morning for all of the striving and the plotting to get what they want can you notice with me in this text that everyone just ends up divided and miserable for all of the striving and the machination for all of the costumes and the and the funny voices and the for all of the plans and the plots all they end up with is division and dissatisfaction. I I just want to say for what it's worth, that isn't only true in Genesis 27. It's not only true in this little text. It's true of human history. It's, It's true of human history, and it's true of many areas of our own lives, these places where we're working so hard to get what we want because we haven't realized what we have. Because we haven't realized what we have or we're not satisfied in it. I mentioned at the beginning that God had come to Isaac in in 26 and said, I've been with you, I am with you, I will be with you, and that that wasn't enough. So as a result of all of this, the scheming and the planning, the division, the lack of conversation, the lack of compassion and empathy, at the end Isaac ends up essentially cursing Esau. He has to send Jacob away. His marriage is in shambles. His wife doesn't trust him. She (laughs) lies to him. You guys, he doesn't even get the wild game he wants. He gets goat dressed up like wild game, right? He doesn't even get the dinner he wants in this text. Rebecca's in the midst of a broken marriage where she doesn't trust her husband. She's separated from her sons. And most people will say, if you figure out the timelines here, it's likely she, we never see her call Jacob back from Laban's household and Aaron, paid an Aram. So it's likely that Rebecca never sees Jacob again. That she dies before he comes back. Did she get what she wanted? Not really. I mean, in some ways, Jacob was blessed. That was one of her goals. But ultimately, do you think her goal was to lose both of her sons? We even see her declare that's not what she wants in the text. Jacob has to flee. He faces death threats. He's separated from his family. And the rest of his life will be marred with deceit and deception. Esau is cursed. He's filled with hate. He's filled with a murderous desire. He's criticized by his mother. This doesn't turn out great for anybody. They're all working so hard to get what they want and all they end up with is divided and hurting. Division and dissatisfaction. You see, what happens in us is that... uh, scarcity and fear produces selfishness. We, we, we want to get what we want. We're worried there's not going to be enough for us. We're worried there's not going to be, uh, people aren't going to respect us or they're not going to listen to us, that we're not going to accomplish the things we want to accomplish, that we won't look as good on our Instagram as the person next to us, that we won't get the promotion somebody else gets. We're worried that our house won't compare to somebody else's house or our vacation pictures won't compare to somebody else's vacation pictures. Even when it comes to righteousness and trying to follow Jesus, there's a constant comparison going on. Is mine as good as somebody else's? At least I'm not as unrighteous as the person next to me. We're constantly in this game to try and win. At religion, at life, at business, at pleasure, at wealth, at relationships, at power, we're always trying to win. And all that ends up doing is producing tears in the eyes of our brand new wife, right? Producing tears in the eyes of our brand new wife because we're desperate to win. Scarcity and fear produces selfishness and pride which divide and destroy community. Let me say that again. Scarcity and fear produce selfishness and pride which divide and destroy community. All these people trying to secure the blessing But the blessing of God is unlimited. Let me say that one again. All of these people striving and backbiting and tricking one another to try and achieve and obtain blessing, but the blessing of God is unlimited. The point of God's covenant with Abraham was that all people would be blessed. Remember that? God didn't say, I'm going to bless Abraham and Abraham alone. He didn't say, I'm going to bless Isaac and Isaac alone. I'm going to bless Jacob and Jacob alone. He said, I'm going to bless Abraham that all the people will be blessed. Even the pagan king Abimelech, the Philistine king, understands that the blessing of God is for everybody who even gets close to Isaac. And yet here we are still struggling to get what we think we need, to get what we think we deserve, to make sure we get more than other people. The point of God's covenant was that all people would be blessed. And the same is true for us in an even greater way. You see, what God was pointing to through the Abrahamic covenant was the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That the Lord Jesus Christ would come to this earth to rescue you and I in sin and death and brokenness in our frailty and in our flaws. That Jesus would come and take the sin of us all upon himself as a sacrifice in our place. That he would come and die because of his great love for us. That he would glorify the Father by dying in our place, rising from the dead, and then by his grace and only his grace, extending to us resurrection life. All the people of the earth bless By the incarnation, the sacrificial death, the resurrection, and the gracious bestowment of resurrection life. The blessing is unlimited, and the blessing is for everyone. In Ephesians chapter 1, which we studied not too long ago, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, in the opening sentences of that letter, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Does he not know what he's talking about? If he knows what he's talking about, what is it you're working so hard to acquire? What is it you're working so hard? Stepping over other people, putting other people down. What is it you're working so hard? You got the hair on your arms and somebody else's jacket on. What is it we're working so hard to accomplish if we have already in Christ been blessed with every spiritual blessing? Is there any way to go up from that? Is there any way to get more than the unlimited blessing of God, which in Christ is ours? There's no way to to go up. You're, You're at the apex, Paul says. We're still striving and plotting and distrusting and manipulating to get what we think we deserve instead of resting in the limitless grace of God for all of us. Resting in the limitless grace of God. You know what I missed when I was trying to win that Monopoly game? I was so focused on trying to win the Monopoly game and not just win the Monopoly game, but like, you know, embarrass the, the woman across the table from me. What I missed is I just married my best friend. That a person who had just committed herself to walk with me the rest of my life through the good and the bad and sickness and the health and richer and poor. this person who just dedicated her existence to walking beside me was sitting across the table. You know, what? I didn't need to play Monopoly. I definitely didn't need to win. And what did it cost me? I got so worried about winning a stupid board game, that I missed the incredible blessing I already had. I missed the incredible blessing I already had. I wasn't paying attention to the incredible blessing I already had because I was trying to get this next thing. And you guys, I didn't need the next thing. And neither do we. We don't need the next thing. Jesus says, accordingly, whoever's trying to find their life will lose it. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Die to self is what Jesus is saying. Give up all of your stuff that you're trying to accomplish. Quit trying to win. He says in 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He's like, you don't, you don't have to hunt for your life. When you stop trying to win, when you stop trying to get the thing you think you need, when you try, stop trying to accomplish you know, your power and pleasure or be better than the people around you, whatever, when you turn loose of that striving is when you'll realize you already have everything you need. That you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Galatians says something similarly. Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 says, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Isaac, Esau, Rebekah, Jacob, what are they planting here, my friends? They're planting deception, manipulation, power struggle, control, envy, jealousy, favoritism. That's the seeds they're planting. Is it any wonder that the harvest they reap are all those same things? Disunity, and dissatisfaction. Well th- that's what they that's what they planted. And so that's what they've reaped. But God remains faithful. I love this verse 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 11 and following says this. The saying is trustworthy for if we've died with him we also will live with him. If we endure we will also reign with him. If we deny him we will also uh, if we deny him he will also deny us. Verse 13 if we are faithless he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. He remains faithful. You can't lose. Even when you're broken. Even when you're crummy. Even when you're busted. He is faithful still. It's interesting. I've heard this message out of Genesis 27 taught like this. With the overarching message being. um, That the message of Genesis 27. Is that sometimes God's blessing can come to undeserving people. I've heard this text taught. That the principle implied is that sometimes God's blessing comes to undeserving people. Can I tell you that's not the message of this text? Not at all. Nor is it the message of the Bible. Can I tell you that the message of the scriptures, that the message of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the message of Genesis 27 is that God's blessing only comes to undeserving people? Because there are only undeserving people. This doesn't teach us that sometimes people who don't deserve it get blessed. What we find in the text is that in every case, it is the undeserving who are blessed, and there is enough blessing for all of us. All of us are undeserving, and yet the limitless blessing of God is available to all of us, and therefore there's no need for our plotting and our striving. There's no need for our deception, for our envy, for our jealousy, for our favoritism, for our preferences. There's no need for any of that. There's no need for the drama. God embraces us. God embraces us and that is enough. I don't know where you're at in your life. I don't know what you're thinking about your job or your neighborhood or your family or whatever. But can I tell you that there is great peace in looking at a text like this and instead of going, oh, everybody's crummy and they're always crummy to each other going, well, there's a different way. Because any of these four people at any time could have been like, how cool is it that Abraham is our granddad, that Isaac is our dad, and that the blessing of God is upon us. Let's go fishing. Right? Hey, I got a good idea, right? Let's go on a hike. Let's do something else because we are God's people. And it's enough. And turn loose of their striving and their plotting. And what they would have found is both the reception of the blessing of God and increased measure, their awareness and understanding of it and unity with one another when they quit jockeying for position that was already theirs. Would you pray with me? God, help us to get this. Help me to get this. Would you help us to open up our eyes and look across the table and recognize that everything we need, you have already given us by your grace. That there's nothing else we need. That there's no need for for our petty plotting. There's no need for the gossip. There's no need for the division. That we can simply love one another. Reveal you as recipients of your blessing. I pray, God, that you would help those in this room who don't feel blessed, or maybe those in this room who've never put their faith in you, to open up their hands and receive it, to put their faith and their trust in you as the Savior of the world, but more importantly, as their Savior. Receive your blessing and turn loose of their striving. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.